0: Hey guys and a very warm welcome to episode number 12 of a somewhat tweaked and improved I hope true crime enthusiast podcast. As usual I'm Paul the host and true crime enthusiast of the title and I thank you guys as always for joining me. This week is especially a warm welcome because most of the UK is under a big blanket of snow so it's especially chilly here I'm always amazed by how much the UK grinds to a halt when it snows. When other places have it so much worse and they just thrive or just get on with it, it never ceases to amaze me at all. So I hope everyone's fine. All getting ready for Christmas? you got your last minute deals and gifts and your deckies up? Next week is my last episode before a short break over Christmas. As I said, possibly with a Christmas gift thrown in in between. And I'll be back very early in the new year for business as usual. Also next week, we'll be focusing on some unsolved cases from the UK that stretch back over a 30-year period. The truly horrible and heart-wrenching ones as well. Again, they won't be high-profile or familiar, because that's what I try and do on the true crime enthusiast. I don't believe anybody should be forgotten. This week and next have a number of podcasts to recommend and I've decided to head down under to bring you some recommendations from down there of ones that I enjoy this week and there isn't a better place to start than on the true crime island. Check out this fantastic podcast with its straight talking host Cambo. Not only does he recount a great case, interesting, obscure and well-researched ones, but he's a funny and entertaining host as well and he isn't afraid to speak his mind, which I personally love in his own greeting grab a beer and pull up a deck chair with him if you haven't already next up i discovered recently both bloody murder and good nightmare from australia as well and i've liked what i've heard bloody murder is a varied mix of cases from a well-established podcast and hosted by barney and tara they've got a great chemistry between them and the cases span the world over so i'm sure there's something for everybody there Good Nightmare is a relatively new podcast, but it's from an already established host, and I'm sure it's going to go on to bigger and better things. It covers the odd historical cases of interest, and what I thought most interesting, the dark origins of fairy tales. It's only a couple of episodes in, so please go and check them out for yourselves. And lastly, it's The Excellent Felon, fantastic research, interesting cases, and delivered by Broderick in what is probably the perfect voice for podcasting. Now I'm sure many people might um, have their own opinions on who's got the best voice and I might just put a little poll up what's this space. But I never miss an episode and it, for me it tops case file hands down. You can find all of these podcasts where you get your podcasts from. I'm sure there'll be something for everyone and if you do like what you hear then please share them some love and leave them a review. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we go back to London's Soho district in the early months of 1989. What was memorable for me that year was it was the year that I started in secondary school and I met my still to this day best friend. And it's also the year that a certain four piece band from Manchester released a certain album called The Stone Roses. Who knew what an effect that would have on my life. But other people, the families of several, will remember that year with no fond memories at all. The case featured this week is yet another horrific case, and one that reminds us that true evil really is out there, and it does contain disturbing aspects and descriptions of crimes. So with that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of the Human Torch Murders. The area of Soho in the inner London borough of Westminster had for many years a reputation as the centre of the sex industry, with its association with prostitution, pornography and sex shops and clubs still considered by many to be accurate. Actually, the sex industrys declined there somewhat, and now it's considered once again a fashionable district of entertainment and media. Now if you're in a seedy part of town and you run any kind of business then it stands to reason that your clientele are going to be seedy kinds of people as well. I guarantee there'll be many people who will still associate sleazy men in Flasher and sleazy backstreet shops with Soho. Although to what extent this would be the case still I don't know. For a long time also live music and entertainment was also predominant in Soho and there were many live music venues. One such place was the Marquee Club in Soho's Wardour Street, which was for many years a thriving rock club and which hosted early performances from legendary acts such as the sadly departed Starman himself, Bowie of course, The Who, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and it was the site of the first ever live performance by the Rolling Stones in 1962. I can only imagine how epic those shows must have been. Some real legends there, I'm sure you'll agree. There was also a strong and thriving gambling element in Soho, with many gambling dens and amusement arcades. As has always seemed with everywhere I've ever been in, whenever I've visited London, these were always busy places chocker full of people. And if places are busy, then occasionally things may get out of hand. For example, fighting, rowing, thefts, plus the high amounts of cash always to hand that would make such a place an attractive target for robbery. To try to combat this, it would be common to employ security to oversee the premises and the business, to be on hand in the role of a bouncer, an escort and a basic peacekeeper. One such place was a leisure investment arcade on Wardour Street. It's no longer there now, but when it did exist, it was a thriving establishment, very popular and lucrative, and a place where things rarely, if ever, got out of hand. But things did get out of hand, in the most horrific and barbaric of ways, on Sunday, April the 2nd, 1989. Victor Castigador had come to the UK from the Philippines only four years before, and it's fair to say that not only had he come not come from the nicest of backgrounds, but that also he wasn't the nicest of people. In the Philippines, Castigador had been a former commando, and it was alleged part of a sanctioned assassination squad under the Marcos regime. For those who aren't sure what the Marcos regime is, it denotes the corrupt and extravagant rule under martial law of the Philippines by former President Ferdinand Marcos, who ruled the country as a dictator for almost a decade starting from the early 1970s. Now, the stories that emerge from this regime are horrific, with tales of corruption, human rights abuses, tales of people being wrongfully imprisoned, abused, and tortured, and brutally murdered in the most awful of ways, almost too many to count. But amidst all this the Marcos family lived an extravagant lifestyle with Imelda Marcos still famous to this day as being one of the most extravagant people on the planet with a thousand plus pairs of shoes a very famous claim about them. The regime also had their own death squads to execute enemies of the regime often without any sort of trial and Castigador was allegedly one of Marcos's hitmen. He was trained to use guns and various close combat weapons but Castigador had a more favoured method of killing. He used to burn his victims alive. The Persian sanctioned for the hit would be trussed up with chicken wire and burned alive, which Castigador would watch and take a perverse fascination and pleasure from. Once dead, the bodies would then be discarded into water. That is, if he could be bothered going to such brutal lengths. Often he was content to just execute people by shooting them in the head, he sounds delightful, doesn't he? When the Marcos regime of horror ended in 1981, Castigador found himself a bit at a loose end, where he was no longer allowed free reign to kill. It was not long after this that he met an English woman, Jacqueline Haddon, and befriended her, telling her he was a sort of policeman. Jacqueline had moved to the Philippines with her husband, but the marriage broke down, and when it did, she and Castigador began a relationship. This lasted for a while, and in 1984, Jackie moved back to the UK and settled in Middleton on Sea, down in the English county of Sussex. Castigador followed about a year later, deciding to see what benefits the UK had to offer him, and he entered the UK illegally with a view to the couple getting married and him obtaining UK citizenship. But cracks began to appear, and not long after he'd come to the UK and moved in, he began to ill treat the Haddon family. He was abusive to Jackie's two children and he used to regularly beat Jackie also. When this had happened one time too many, and once is enough for that to happen as far as I'm concerned, Jackie plucked up the courage to throw him out of her home. Castigador then found himself in London, where he had a distant relative whom he called Auntie, who lived in Bow in East London. He moved into her council flat and found himself employment as a security guard working at the Leisure Investment Arcades in Soho. Now this was a job Castigador enjoyed. He liked a feeling of authority and to swan around in his uniform, more often than not causing more trouble than any that he would habitually have had to deal with. He liked to pick fights and did not need much of an excuse to use a level of violence that was excessive to say the least. Perhaps it was through this plus his general arrogance and poor record of absenteeism that kept him at that role, as by the time he'd been in the job for four years, he had still not been promoted, and had actually been passed over for the position of assistant manager. And he didn't like that one bit. He considered himself an excellent enforcer. How dare they not recognise this? It was this anger that led to a grudge building up, and to a crime that was to make Victor Castigador the recipient of a whole life tariff. Because of his anger at being passed over, he picked more fights than usual, with customers and staff also, and matters came to a head. In early 1989, Castigador was fired from his security job at the arcade. But he was to be back. It's now closing time at the arcade in the early hours of the 2nd of April 1989, a Sunday evening. There were just four employees left at the arcade. There was the relief manager, Yurev Gomez, cashier Debbie Alvarez, and Sri Lankan security guards, Ambikai Pahan Apapayan, and Kandia Kanapathy Vinaya Gamurthi And they were cashing up that weekend's takings. Suddenly, The arcade was stormed by five people. Four of them were unknown to the staff. They could have been anyone that they passed in the street. But the fifth person was known to them very well. Because it was a very angry Victor Castigador. And he had a murderous look upon his face. The other four were 19-year-old Calvin Nelson and his girlfriend. 17-year-old Karen Dunn. And 17-year-old Paul Clinton and his girlfriend, 20-year-old Alison Woodside. Now Castigador was some years older than these four, but had surrounded himself, as people of the bullying mindset so often do, by people he could dominate and who were impressed by his tough guy tales and exploits. Castigador, who was only five feet tall but was extremely tough and muscular, immediately launched himself forward and subdued one of the guards, while Calvin Nelson pulled a gun and threatened the staff with it. It was later to be revealed that this was a toy replica. The staff were all rounded up and marched downstairs to a basement room, which was next to both the vaults of the arcade and a steel strong room where all the takings were sorted before being stored in the vault. While Nelson held the gun at his neck, Yurev Gomez was made to open the strong room and then the safe. Once he had done so, he was brutally beaten by Castigador and pummeled to the floor then Castigador turned his attentions to the contents of the safe. That day's takings had just been put away, and Castigador began filling a rucksack with the contents of the safe, until it was empty. He had netted £8,685, and sealing the bag, he then turned his attentions back to the four frightened employees who were still being held at gunpoint. He then made each of them kneel down, and fastened their hands behind their backs. Castigador went to a store cupboard and came back out with a container of highly flammable white spirit. He then squirted it all over the four kneeling people making sure that each one was saturated in the liquid and the floor around them was also soaked. Not content with just doing this he also emptied a waste paper basket around the cage where the four had been contained emptied out a fire extinguisher in the room to render it useless and then slammed the steel cage door shut, securing it with a wire coat hanger that was twisted around, and then snipped off with, with pliers to form a crude but effective padlock. Now this must have been absolutely terrifying for these poor people. I know a wealthy couple from the town I'm from, who some years ago were robbed in their own home and had a similar thing done to them. They were tied up and had fuel poured all over them, in a threat to make them open their safe. Thankfully, it was just that, a threat. But what happened next at that arcade that night in 1989 is one of the most horrific and callous acts of slaughter ever recorded. Castigador removed from his pocket a box of matches and began to threaten his former co workers by teasing one along the lighting strip of the box. He began laughing and yelling abuse at them in Filipino, and then both he and his accomplice, Calvin Nelson, who by now had also removed a box of matches from his pocket, struck a match and threw it into the cage. One of the terrified security guards had managed to get to his feet and stamped out the match in desperation, but Castigador, instead of throwing another match in, instead tightly packed newspaper along the bottom of the cage door and stood back, screaming more abuse at the four captives. The deputy manager, Yurev, yelled at him, How can you do this? These are people just like you. One of the terrified security guards then begged Castigador to end his life, saying, Don't light it. I'd rather you just shoot me. Castigador ignored both of these pleas, and using every match left in the box, lit the newspaper packed along the bottom of the door, and watched as a pool of flame took hold. With a total disregard for the horror he had just created, He then turned and led his four accomplices back up the stairs, locked the basement door and left the arcade. The next morning, staff who were working the early shift at the arcade arrived to open up at about 7.55am and found the door unlocked and signs of a struggle. They immediately made a check of the premises and upon opening the basement door they were consumed by smoke but they heard the sounds of low groans and smelled the unmistakable smell of burning human flesh. Horrified that there had been an accident, and unable to tell if it was safe for them to go down to investigate further, they immediately contacted the emergency services. When firefighters arrived just a few minutes later, they descended down into the basement and discovered a scene of carnage. Horrified firefighters found four bodies lying on the floor in the cage, each one horrifically burned. Two of the victims were dead, however, two still clung to life despite their appalling injuries, and both were rushed to a specialist burns unit, at Queen Mary's Hospital in Roehampton. Both Debbie Alvarez and Yurev Gomez were critically injured, with twenty eight percent and thirty percent full thickness burns respectively. Debbie's burns covered her arms and hands, her back and buttocks. Her face and scalp had been destroyed and she was so severely disfigured that it was only when she arrived at hospital that she was identified as being female. Yurev had suffered 30% full thickness burns to parts of his face, his entire left arm from collarbone to fingertips, his entire right arm and back, and a large portion of his chest. Both he and Debbie had also suffered severe internal injuries, including scorching to the upper airway and the lungs. At first, Both were so badly injured that it was feared they may not make it through the night, but they managed to stabilise, and as soon as both were able to, they were interviewed and were able to identify the ringleader of the gang who had burned them alive, simply saying, Victor did it. With a positive identification of the killer, Castigador was arrested a few days after the massacre at his aunt's flat in Bow, with his four accomplices being rounded up also. Castigador denied any knowledge of the crime and expressed a callous disregard for the horrific fate that had happened to people he knew and had indeed worked with. The only reaction was that he was reported to have had was to have expressed surprise that two victims had actually managed to survive such an inferno. In the words of a senior police officer, Castigador really could not understand what all the fuss was about. Now that's the actions of a cold-blooded killer. Be that barbaric, isn't it? It must have come across as such, too. For with the eyewitness accounts from Debbie and Yurev, Castigador and his gang were charged with murder, attempted murder and robbery, and remanded in custody to await trial. Castigador was to deny taking any part in the events of April 2nd, 1989, right up until his trial began at the Old Bailey on the 19th of February, 1990. His male and female accomplices were also to each deny all of the charges. Prosecuting counsel for the Crown, Jean Southworth, QC, hit the ground running, pointing the finger at Castigador being the ringleader of the gang from the off, saying, What happened on this dreadful night can be put down in two words, grudge and greed. Castigador is the main villain. He obviously sees himself as a tough guy. Castigador poured white spirit over the victims and onto the floor and with Woodside and Nelson watching him he and Clinton lit matches and threw them in. The two guards who were at the back of the cage were asphyxiated after sustaining dreadful burns but miraculously Yurev and Debbie survived. The main witnesses at the trial were bravely Yurev Gomez and Debbie Alvarez who made powerful witnesses for the prosecution. Both were in court despite their still terrible injuries and limited mobility, and their brave testimonies made for shocking and disturbing evidence at the trial. Yurev, who had to wear a black leather glove over his severely scarred left hand, was to describe what had happened. Victor threw bits of paper from the dustbins into the cage. I saw him empty in a fire extinguisher. He went off and reappeared with what looked like a jiffy bottle, He came into the cage and started squirting it over our heads. He made sure everyone was soaked and then slammed the cage door shut and secured it with the coat hanger. Yurev went on to explain how he and Debbie had managed to survive the inferno, how he managed to untie his hands and drag himself and Debbie to the only slight source of air in the room, the strong room door. There was a thin vent of air coming from beneath the door and through the keyhole and he and Debbie. Although each was severely burned at this time, used this air supply to, it was likely this that saved their lives. They each then took turns breathing oxygen through the keyhole of the strong room door, which was a stronger supply of air. He went on. There was a ball of fire. It was like an oven. My skin was on fire and I could feel myself disintegrating, but there was nowhere to go. I undid my hands and rolled myself on the floor and the wall and put myself out. I managed to get my mouth near the keyhole and I kept going down for 10 minutes and coming up again. But Debbie's leg was still alight. She was unconscious and there were little bits of blue flame all over her body. I stretched over and put my hand on her leg and put the fire out. I caught a light again and that is how I burned all over. I put myself out again and pulled her over. Sadly, he was unable to get her. and Bikaipahan and Candia Kanapathy because they had been dragged to the back of the strong room. Yurev could barely see them, but he could hear their cries and screams. He was just unable to get to them. The fire was just too fierce. Instead, and this must be unimaginable, he had to make the unenviable choice of focusing upon who he could save. Struggling with his emotions, Yurev told how he heard the two security guards die in the fire. He said, Mr. Vyanagamorthy took one deep breath, then breathed out and died. And Bekaipahan said something in his own language. I believe he was praying. About 20 minutes later, he went exactly the same way. Both guards, although severely burned, had actually died from smoke inhalation. It was also revealed that following the robbery and the horrific murders... The young accomplices in the crime, Calvin Nelson, Paul Clinton, Karen Dunn and Alison Woodside, had used their share of the proceeds of the crime to visit Torquay, where they had had a spending spree and generally behaved as though they hadn't no a care in the world, even to the extent that they could laugh and make sick jokes about their victims. These must have been severely disturbed collective youth for it was alleged that during a taxi ride back to the hotel they were all staying at after a boozy night out either Dunn or Woodside had complained about being cold and the taxi driver had offered to turn up the heater in the car one of them retorted we don't want to burn to which the other three creased up laughing now that's just something else as well isn't it a complete lack of remorse or even guilt Shortly after the trial had started, Castigador had ceased to deny any involvement in the murders and had instead admitted his culpability in all charges. Calvin Nelson and Paul Clinton each continued to deny all of the charges against them, but were found guilty of murder, attempted murder and robbery, whilst Karen Dunn and Alison Woodside had also denied all charges, but were found not guilty of murder and attempted murder, but guilty of robbery. The girls were given unfairly light sentences, in my opinion, considering their involvement in such a heinous crime. Dunn received just three years' youth custody, whilst Woodside was sentenced to just three and a half years' imprisonment. Nelson and Clinton were not so fortunate, however. Nelson got a life sentence in a young offenders' institution, whilst Clinton was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure which, for those of you who don't know, denotes an indeterminate length of sentence. This was to be later set at a 20-year minimum tariff. Castigador's sentence was reserved until his co-defendants had been sentenced. So before he was sentenced, the defence counsel, James Mulcahy QC, told the court, It would be very surprising if you had not come to the conclusion, having heard the evidence and seen the witnesses, that Castigador was a ruthless, callous and inhuman monster. And that's his own defence counsel. Mulcahy then went on to tell the court somewhat of Castigador's life of violence in the Philippines, as a member of the Philippines Constabulary, detailing his claims of sanctioned violence and murder, and that he had proudly boasted to the detectives that he had been personally responsible for around 20 executions there. He drew attention to the carnage that Castigador had caused and almost tried to give the impression that Castigador had been made into a monster by being recruited into a regime a world away from any western democracy. But it was never suggested that Castigador was in any way suffering from insanity, rather that he was just plain evil. Then it came to his sentencing. Mr Justice Rugier told Castigador that he had condemned his victims to an agonising death, without one shred of pity or mercy, and condemning him as he stood before him. I find it almost impossible to understand the workings of a mind as twisted and as evil as yours. You were the man who planned this, recruited for it, and saw it through with evil determination. You have forfeited the right to walk free for a very long time. Some might say that you have forfeited the right to live at all, but unlike you, we do not go to that length in this country. Castigador was then sentenced to two counts of life imprisonment, with Mr Justice Rugier ruling that he would serve a minimum of 25 years before he would ever be considered for parole. Debbie and Yurov, his surviving victims, were in court to see the monster that had forever changed their lives put away for life. Brave Debbie who was left badly disfigured and for whom even simple mobility was difficult due to the burns that she had suffered that night, would only say, I wanted to be here so that Victor could see exactly what he had done to me. Skip forward now to 2003. Castigador was still in prison. Nelson was still in prison. Dunn and Woodside had both been long released. Clinton was still incarcerated But solicitors for Paul Clinton had appeared at the Royal Courts of Justice to appeal for a reduction in his minimum sentence. But during this appeal, statements were heard on behalf of both Yurev and Debbie, who opposed Clinton's appeal and demanded that he serve his full sentence. These statements denoted the full extent of the suffering that both still went through, even 14 years later. The appeal heard how Yurev was left dependent on oxygen still due to the ordeal. He was left disabled and prone to pneumonia because the injuries in the fire had made him lose a lung. Debbie could hardly speak due to the burns that she had received that night in 1989. She was left severely disfigured. She could hardly walk due to the burns she had received to her legs and had fallen several times and suffered multiple broken bones as a result of this. This had all combined to leave her a virtual recluse, with her only feeling able to leave the house when absolutely necessary. Needless to say, this had the same impression on those at the hearing as hopefully it has had on you listening, and they decided that no, Clinton should deservedly serve his recommended sentence. He did, and was released a few years ago, as was Calvin Nelson. And Victor Castigador, was his story finished? not a chance when his minimum sentence review came around it was deemed that his crimes were still so horrific that castigador was made the subject of a whole life tariff by then home secretary jack straw meaning that he would spend the rest of his days behind bars with no prospect of ever being released he had spent the majority of his sentence moving around several different prisons in the uk come into attention a number of times for attacks on other prisoners, including one who he stabbed in the eye. And by 2016, he was in Her Majesty's Prison, Long Lartin, which is a Category A prison in Worcestershire, and it contains notable inmates such as the suspected serial killer Christopher Halliwell, who's another prisoner on a whole life tariff. Yet another serving prisoner at Long Lartin at the time, and again another whole life tariffer, was fifty nine year old Sidonio Texira. Texaira had been sentenced in two thousand and seven after being found guilty of the murder of his own three year old daughter and the attempted murder of his nine year old son. As a child killer, Texaira was universally reviled, and he was especially hated by Castigador, leading to the two men having words several times and Castigador branding him a wet dog and vowing to murder that bastard. Although Castigador was by now 62 years old and not the physical force he once was, his evil mind had not diminished or blunted in any aspect. At some point he had determined that he was going to kill Texaira, and in June 2016 Castigador made good on his promise to himself. Long in Prison had had a fish tank installed as it was believed, alongside other prisons, that this would have a calming influence on the inmates. At the bottom of the tank, and somewhat unbelievably overlooked by security chiefs I think, was not just coloured gravel or slate chippings as so many people have in their fish tanks, but several large and heavy stones. It was easy for Castigador to remove and secrete one on his person, and it was ultimately as easy for him to fashion it into a sock to make a makeshift kosh. This is a devastating weapon. If you've ever seen the film Scum, then you will know the scene when Ray Winston whacks uh, Phil Daniels across the head with a sock with pool balls in it. Phil Daniels doesn't know what hit him in it, believe me. On the 20th of June 2016, as Taksira waited in his cell before going to his daily workshop, Castigador casually approached him, and brutally battered him to death using the stone in the sock kosh. The floor and walls of the room were left slicked with Texaira's blood, and Castigador made no attempt to flee or to excuse his actions. Instead, he just sat down, and when shocked staff tried to check Texaira for signs of life, Castigador said from the bunk he was sat on, He pissed me off, he deserved what he had. I'm never getting out, I've got nothing to lose he won't need an ambulance, he's dead. At his trial for murder in Worcester Crown Court in September 2016, Castigador appeared in the dock in a brown sweater and trousers, sporting his hair in a ponytail and wearing dark-rimmed glasses. When asked to enter a plea, briefly conferred with his barrister before entering a guilty plea to the murder of Sidonio Texaira. On October twenty first, 2016, at Birmingham Crown Court, Victor Castigador was sentenced to a third whole life tariff term for the brutal murder, with the Honourable Justice Haddon Cave telling him, This was a brutal, savage, merciless and unprovoked attack. You said he had got what he deserved. You said he was a horrible man and a bully. What do you think you are? You seem to think that you are something of an enforcer as you said it was your job. You are wrong. It is not your job or right to judge others or pass moral judgments in others. You should try and live out the rest of your sentence with dignity. Every human life has value, even yours. Once again, you will spend the rest of your natural life in prison with no prospect of ever being released. After hearing his sentence, Castigador simply said, I'm wrong to kill somebody, but it's my job. When I was in my country, I was a member of a liquidation squad. Sometimes you have to punish evil. What hope have I got? These people are pissing on me. He came to me. He's asking for that. People are taking the piss out of me. I'm sorry, Your Honour, but thanks very much. Prosecutor Peter Grieve Smith, QC, echoing what had been heard back in 1989, told the court. This was a premeditated killing. As far as the attack was concerned, it was a merciless attack carried out with an intent to kill. The reality of this defendant is, he looks down on certain prisoners by virtue of the offences by which they have been committed. The defendant was interviewed and he admitted killing Mr. Texaira and referred to him as a horrible man and a bully. He said, Sometimes you have to punish evil. He had no regret for what he had done. As is routine, Castigador was transferred away from Long Lartin to Her Majesty's Prison Woodhill following his conviction in January 2017. But Castigador was to pay precious little of his third ever whole life tariff, as on the 19th of March 2017, he had a stroke in his prison cell. He was rushed to hospital, but he never regained consciousness, and he died of a stroke caused by a blood clot in an artery. On the 21st of March 2017. As I bet comes as a surprise to absolutely nobody. Very few people mourned his passing. This is yet another shocking case don't you agree? I've never been able to forget the callousness of casually leaving four innocent people to burn alive like that. But to not have a single shred of remorse. And who knows what this guy had done in the Philippines before coming to the UK all those years ago. I know that some horror stories tend to come out of places that are run by a dictatorship. For example, the tales of Papa Doc's regime in Haiti and the infamous Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. But it's surely a different level of evil, isn't it, to do something as wicked as that and not bat an eyelid? And then to actually say, after your third whole life tariff, that it's your job to punish evil? What the hell do you think your actions are then, Victor? It seems a bit more common nowadays for life in prison to mean life, but for a long time, Castigador was part of a select list of about 50 or so prisoners that made up the initial core, whose crimes were deemed so terrible that they should never even be considered for release. Perhaps he played on that notoriety somewhat, for right up until the last year of his life, he justified exactly how dangerous he was. Now there are pictures available of the Teixeira crime scene online. If you're squeamish, perhaps give it a miss. But they do show how savage an attack this must have been. And look at Castigador's mugshots, both from his arrest in 1989, and again following his 2016 whole life tariff conviction. That's the chilling face of evil. In a sad case such as this, it's a small victory that both Nelson and Clinton had to serve their recommended minimum sentences in full. When crimes such as these, they don't deserve any leniency whatsoever. Think of Debbie and Yurev and the suffering that they still go through to this day. One an absolutely tragic case and what a very, very evil man. I'm going to invite the standard discussion about this week's episode on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook, which grows more popular by the day, and there's still plenty of room for new members. All are welcome to join and voice your opinions, shoot the breeze, post up a GIF, whatever you'd like. It's an open forum and your opinions do count. I always look forward to hearing back. I'm sure that you might have noticed a slight few tweaks to the podcast this week. Changing times, but hopefully changes for the better. I know yet again that this week's has been a disturbing story. But as I do say often here, there's no such thing as a nice crime. And I believe tales such as Castigadors have to be told. I've been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast. And I'll be back again next week with the final episode before 2018 one that contains some unsolved cases from yesteryear. You can find me on the usual social media. I'm sure you can guess what I'm known as on there. And thanks very much for joining me, guys. Be safe, take care, and I'll catch you again very soon. Goodbye for now.